0: Is fifty one through sixty six, and this is the word of God. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tomb after his re- coming out of the tombs after his resurrection. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Let's pray together. Lord Again, we thank you for the opportunity to gather under your word. And my prayer here, Lord, is that you would indeed be honored in our time together. Help us know you, love you, magnify you because of your word. God, be glorified. Do a supernatural work in our hearts. With your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Over the past few weeks, we've walked with the Lord Jesus through some amazing and horrible circumstances. Right? We've watched Jesus choose to be arrested in the garden, we've watched him keep silent, refusing to defend himself in the face of evil and false accusations. We've watched him stand before a godless governor and allow himself to be sentenced to death on a Roman cross, even though he could have very easily presented a defense to gain his freedom. And we watched the Lord Jesus die on that cross, yielding up his spirit. It was an act of his will. And while Jesus was hanging on that cross, as I told you last week, Far more was happening than physical suffering. As the sky grew dark, God the Father poured out on the Lord Jesus His judgment, His wrath, His holy and just fury for every sin that God will ever forgive. God treated Jesus the way He would properly treat any of us if we were to be judged for any of our sins. Thus, while Jesus was on the cross, he went through really what hell is, suffering not only separation, but the wrath, the judgment of God for sins that he never committed. But as Jesus died, when he died, do you remember the words he said? It is finished the work was done he had perfectly obeyed the law in our place he had perfectly suffered as a sacrifice for our sins there was no more suffering left for jesus to do to complete the work There was not one single act of righteousness left for Jesus to do to fulfill the law. Jesus had done it all. So as we pick up the story today, we're going to watch because the stage is set for something absolutely glorious. We're going to watch God point to his Son and show others that Jesus really is everything he claimed to be. We'll watch as a faithful man stands up for Jesus in a dangerous world. We'll watch as evil men do everything in their power to oppose Jesus, even after his death. And in it all, we'll see the glory of God, and we will wait for God to do the very thing that God has been promising He would do from the very beginning. Raise Jesus from the dead. Now, like we've done for the last few weeks, we'll watch three scenes unfold. And we will make six observations in those scenes, if you want to write them down. But let's get started as we open with the scene of The supernatural testimony. The supernatural testimony is our first scene. Look at just the first three verses, 51 to 53, starting this scene. And behold, do you remember what behold means when I tell you this? It's 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 a Greek way of saying, take a look at this. Pay attention. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook. And the rocks were split, the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Around the time of Jesus' death, several things take place that we can only understand to be supernatural, miraculous signs. While Jesus was on the cross from noon to 3 p.m. on that Friday, God the Father darkened the sky in a supernatural way. And uh, we talked about last week that that might be a a symbol, a sign, pointing to the fact that God the Father is judging Jesus, darkness toward judgment, judging Jesus for our sins, since Jesus never committed. But here, after Matthew tells us Jesus laid down his life, voluntarily yielding up his spirit... Matthew gives us a few other things that took place that are very important. So, first, Matthew tells us at the time of Jesus' death, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, in many a place in ordinary life, a ripped curtain is no big deal. if you tell me that a curtain in your house has been torn... I'm going to assume that you either have a cat, or a toddler, or both. But the tearing of a temple curtain, the temple curtain, that's a big deal. In in the Jewish temple, the holiest place, the Holy of Holies, was curtained off from the rest of the building. Outside that curtain, there was an altar for the regularly performed sacrifices of the Jews. But the Holy of Holies was to represent the presence of God. And in that place, only one sacrifice was offered each year. The Jewish high priest on the Day of Atonement would enter the holy place with the blood of a sacrifice to make atonement for the sins of the nation. This was the priest obeying a command of God that showed us that even though the people were making regular sacrifices for sins on the altar outside, I mean, that thing got a lot of use. Even though they were sacrificing animal after animal, day after day, the presence of God was not open to the common people. Instead... Even even the religious leaders, even the religious system still needed blood to be shed to avoid the wrath of God for their sin. But when Jesus died, that curtain, a very thick, very high curtain, was torn in two. It was torn from top to bottom I think that tells us that this was no act of man. God himself chose to rip that curtain apart. And in doing so, God had a message for you and me, for all of us. We'll call this our first observation. Number one, the sacrificial system is obsolete and the way to God is open in Christ. If you're really young and don't want to write all those words, you can just write the way to God is open in Christ. But the observation is that the sacrificial system is obsolete and the way to God is open in Christ. What was it that Jesus said just before he died? It is finished. Well, just like that, God the Father pronounces for the universe to hear that the sacrificial system was finished at the death of Jesus. When God tore that curtain in half, God was announcing that no longer was the way into his presence blocked. Now, because of the shed blood of Jesus, a sacrifice has been made that finally actually truly satisfies the wrath of God and brings actual complete forgiveness to his followers those who are under that sacrifice God is showing us with that tearing of that curtain there is not even one more blood offering that will ever be acceptable to him all of it is done but now all of those who come to him through the shed blood of Jesus are welcome. Paul said, Jesus is the one in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him, Ephesians 3.12. So Jesus opened access to God through his blood. That, that's what the, turn, turn, the torn curtain tells us. And really, if you took time to study the book of Hebrews, you're going to find out that that has a lot to do with what the entire book's about. In Hebrews 4.16, the Word of God says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's no, watch out, there's a wall between you and God. It has to be there. It is, draw near. Come in to the throne of grace. Hebrews 9, 24 through 26 says this, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, nothing so small as all that, which are copies of the true thing, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, Jesus, he has appeared once, for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Do you hear how significant those words are? Jesus made the sacrifice. Everything else is done as a copy and shadow. Hebrews ten nineteen and 20 says, Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, catch this, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Jesus' sacrificial death made the one and only true offering for sin that's ever been made. All the other offerings in the Old Covenant, which Don't get me wrong, God said someone does these things, they will be forgiven, and God told the truth. But all other offerings in the Old Covenant were shadows that pointed toward what is to come. Those Old Testament sacrifices served kind of like little reminders for God, like little little placeholders or post-it notes that say, watch this. The watching universe could see that God, through those offerings, they pointed to the fact that sometime soon God will absolutely, rightly, perfectly handle every single sin. But you see, Jesus, with his own blood, that's the actual blood that takes away the actual sin, the actual punishment for actual sin that everyone that God forgives has ever committed. Jesus, with His own blood, made one real sacrificial propitiation, right? Jesus satisfied the justice and the wrath of God. Jesus took upon Himself the anger, the fury of God for those sins that He would forgive. And Jesus did away with that because of a sacrifice so that we can now enter the presence of God under God's good pleasure, And like a high priest, Jesus made an offering. But unlike an earthly high priest, Jesus was himself the offering. Don't, by the way, let this confuse you on this angle. Jesus is not the good guy who made an offering to make a mean, cold-hearted, angry God the Father be nice to you. That is ungodly thinking. The offering of Jesus for your sins and mine is the plan of the entire Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit from before creation. God the Father is as loving toward us as is Jesus. And Jesus hates and judges our sin just as much as does the Father. God is perfect, and God is perfectly unified in His love, in His holiness, in His wrath, in His mercy, in all that God is in His plan. God is united, Father, Son, and Spirit, going all the same direction. So, so, so we need to say thanks be to God for the work done in Jesus. There is no longer a sacrifice necessary for your sin. Neither Is there any such thing as any acceptable sacrifice for your sin? The work has been done one time, once for all, all done, nothing extra can be added. There is only one way for any person to be saved because there's only one sacrifice that could be made for sins, and that is they can be saved by God's grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. That's our only salvation and our only sacrifice given to us through the blood of the Lord Jesus. And the tearing of the temple curtain tells us about that. But you know what? The tearing of that temple curtain doesn't just tell us that. It's not the only thing that took place that day. It's not the only miracle that points us to Jesus. What else happened? The earth shook. You ever been in an earthquake before? It's an experience. This earthquake was so strong that scripture tells us the rocks split. And the breaking of those rocks may very well be what caused the entrance stones to tombs to be broken open as we see in verse 52. Stones that cover the mouths of graves are shattering, falling in half, rolling away from their entrances. By the way, Since this earthquake happens just before the Sabbath day begins, the Jewish leaders couldn't go fix that that evening. Interesting in God's timing, isn't it? Now, an earthquake splitting rocks that also might be a hint of the judgment of God and the judgment of God that will come. Jesus is God. Jesus is judge. Jesus took upon himself the judgment of God for your sins, for my sins. But for everybody who's outside of God's grace, for everybody who refuses Jesus, says, I don't want anything to do with you. I'll do it myself. I don't believe you. For those, the Bible says that Jesus will return he will judge and shaking the earth and breaking the rocks reminds us of the might and the fury of the judgment that will come. And then we see a miracle that is, to be frank, just plain weird. Matthew is the only one of the four evangelists who tells us that many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Verses 52 and 53. Now that is all the data we have about this. So th- this, is something, this is a conversation my wife and I have on a regular basis. I'll tell Mitzi something. And I'll say, hey, you know, I talked to so-and-so, and their wife went and bought this. That's all the info I got. I am tapped out at that point. And she will ask me a question about the thing that she bought or what they're going to use it for. And I don't know, because I've given all the information I have. You do need to know that all the information we have on this circumstance is in what we just read, Matthew tells us, after Jesus rose from the dead, some Old Testament saints were brought out of their graves as well, and these men, maybe women too, we don't really know, walked out of their tombs on Sunday after Jesus rose from the grave, and they entered into Jerusalem. Matthew says they were seen by many. Now, why did this happen? What's the answer to this? I don't know. How long did they stay in Jerusalem? I don't know. What did they say to people when they were in Jerusalem? I don't know. But this is for sure... One more miracle of God that shows us that Jesus has fully completed the requirements of the law of God and Jesus has fully fulfilled the hopes of every Old Testament saint, right? Who are some Old Testament saints that you might have seen? Abraham? Isaac? Jacob? David? Moses? Solomon? Maybe? I don't know. So many Old Testament folks had believed the promise of God. So many Old Testament folks had believed that a Messiah would come, that a Savior would come. Did did men like Abraham and David come out of their graves and go into Jerusalem and just celebrate and proclaim that Messiah finished the work? Maybe. I don't know. But I'll tell you this, the resurrection of those saints, those people coming out of their graves... They point us to the fact that at the return of Jesus, all of the forgiven in Jesus will come out of their graves, be given resurrection bodies, and live eternally with Christ. Let's tie it all together here. We'll make a second observation. Observation number two, supernatural signs point to the truth of Christ's claim supernatural signs point to the truth of christ's claims jesus is god in the flesh jesus died to pay for our sins jesus will rise from the grave in chapter 28 spoiler alert and i don't want you to be surprised it's coming next chapter and God lined up a great many signs to show you and me that this is true. God darkened the sky. God tore the curtain in the temple. God shook the earth. God split the rocks. And he opened the tombs. And on Sunday, not only is Jesus, the firstborn from among the dead, going to walk out of the tomb, but he's going to be joined by Old Testament saints who are back from the dead And all of these things together serve to tell us that the death of Jesus is no ordinary occurrence. Jesus is everything that he ever claimed to be. He's God. He's God's Son. He's Messiah. He's King. He's sacrifice. He's Savior. And And then look here at verses 54 to 56, same scene. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, They were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to Him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So so the miracles Matthew spoke of here, they didn't go unnoticed. The Roman centurion saw. This guy had seen death before, by the way. But this was different. The words Jesus spoke, the claims Jesus made, the signs the Father performed, all of those served as proof to that centurion something of the identity of Jesus. Guys, not only were the tombs opened when the Savior died, but it seems that also the centurion's eyes were opened by God to see the truth. Jesus is the Son of God. Now, did that centurion fully believe and become a devoted follower of Christ? I don't know. It's hard to say. But for sure this, there is a hint that God is bringing, going to be bringing, faithful Gentiles into his family. And that's true. There's a hint of that. There's a, there's a, there's a point that, man, this guy's going to save not just the Jews in the fact that this this Gentile centurion recognizes immediately this is the Son of God. Now besides the centurion and besides the soldiers, Matthew tells us of, of a few faithful women who were near the cross, who, who saw what, what he told us about. We have listed in Matthew a couple of Marys and the mother of John and James. There's, if you read Luke and John, you'll see some other names listed that were in that group as well. How cool is this, by the way? First of all, a single lady... And a couple married ladies, Matthew mentioned. So guess which is more valuable? Neither one. And who are the first people to see that the, the, who are followers, followers of Jesus, who stick with Him to the end, and who are there even at His death? Who are we mentioning here? We see right here that these faithful, godly women were a major part of what the ministry of Jesus was before His death, and they will be a major part of His ministry after His resurrection. Now, third observation real quick. Named eyewitnesses point to the truth of Matthew's account. Named eyewitnesses point to the truth of Matthew's account. Just just as a quick note, okay? I want you to imagine that you're lying. You're making up a story. Or imagine that Matthew was making up a story to pull the wool over our eyes. You know what he wouldn't have done? He would not have made big, bold claims and then named names for who was there. Just, 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 a, just a point, right? I mean, if you're going to tell a lie, don't say somebody was there that I can go check with. Make sense? You could have found out Which centurion was at the cross? You could have found these women. You could have checked Matthew's sources to see if what he said was a lie or if it really is what they saw. Matthew lays it out with clarity. And you know what? Nobody ever shined a hint of doubt on what Matthew told us. Let's go to our second scene. The burial of Jesus. Matthew 27, 57 to 61. sitting opposite the tomb. Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Unlike the men who schemed to put Jesus to death, Joseph believed in Jesus and Joseph did not give consent to Jesus' mockery, trial, or execution. Joseph was wealthy. Joseph was well-respected. Which means Joseph had a lot to lose. Joseph had, up until this point, kept his following of Jesus a secret. Perhaps he was protecting himself. After all, the the Sanhedrin, we've already found out, hated Jesus and wanted him dead. But now that the Lord has gone to the cross, it seems that the Spirit of God is bringing about a boldness in Joseph. So not only does he announce that he believes in Jesus, but he approaches the Roman governor Pontius Pilate with the request that he be allowed to bury the body of Jesus. And that's a weird request because most crucified criminals would not have been given a proper burial. Their their bodies would have been thrown on a burning trash heap outside of Jerusalem. Think about what Pilate could have done here. Could Pilate not have seen this as an opportunity Opportunity to do harm to a follower of Jesus? I'll scoop you up too. But Pilate doesn't. Pilate checks to find out is Jesus really already dead? It's only a little after three in the afternoon. Pilate's surprised to find out that Jesus is not still alive. But remember, we saw last week, Jesus, though strong enough to shout out with a loud voice, voluntarily gave up his spirit. So Pilate finds out Jesus really is dead, and he grants Joseph permission to bury Jesus. Which gives us a fourth observation. Honoring Jesus requires boldness in a hostile world. Honoring Jesus requires boldness in a hostile world. Joseph risked much to stand with Jesus. In truth, as times change, as our culture gets darker, as our culture grows more hostile, we too are going to need boldness to stand with Jesus. We, as the people of God, must be willing to follow Jesus even through hardships. What did Jesus tell us? He warned us, if the world hated him, they're going to hate us. He called us to take up your cross and follow me. A cross was not a decoration A cross was not a piece of jewelry that you would put in gold or stylize it with a nice Celtic design, right? A cross was a tool used to bring about the bloodiest, goriest, ugliest execution they knew how to do. Jesus said, grab one of those for yourself if you want to follow me. He promised us no easy lives in the here and now. But what he did promise faithful followers is that they could have forgiveness and fellowship with him and eternal life and the rewards of heaven. It's worth it. But don't you dare think it's going to be easy in the here and now. And then in John's account, we find out that, in case you don't know, Nicodemus Another member of the Sanhedrin came along with Joseph to to take Jesus down and, and bury him. They would have laid the dead body of Jesus down on the ground on top of a long sheet. Assume something that might have been, you know, maybe even 10, 11, 12 feet long. Double the height, at least, of the person you're burying. They would have done their best, probably, to wash his body with sponges and water as best they could, and then they would have anointed the body for burial. That They would have covered his body with perfumes and spices. Nicodemus brought somewhere around 75 pounds in our measurement of spices and ointment to put on the body. The burial practice of the Jews was not to embalm a body to prevent decay so much as it was to use spices and scented, fragrant oils to mask the, sp- the smell of decay. And it's feasible, by the way. I mean, I don't know. There were women that we know were hanging around there. Did, did, they, did they help in this preparation? I, I don't know. The Bible is silent on it if they were. Did they stand back and watch? I, I, I don't know. But these men would have, certainly they, they wrapped Jesus' face in, in a separate cloth covering the face respectfully. Then they would have taken the sheet from the head end of the body and pulled it down over the the, the feet of the body and secured it. And then the two men, maybe they had some helpers, I don't know, but the two men carry the body of Jesus away from Golgotha. And near to the place of execution was a garden, And in that garden, Joseph, this wealthy man, owned an unused tomb. And this tomb would have been a small cave cut out of the rock in the side of a hill. Probably there was a small chamber in the front for a body to be laid out, maybe on a bench or a little depression in the floor. Now, this tomb was low because people had to duck to get into it. But what the Jews would do typically is they would lay a body out in that front chamber of a tomb for a year and allow the process of decay to occur. And then when that year was completed, the plan would be to get somebody who would come back to the tomb, gather the bones, arrange them in a small casket that was called an ossuary, and place the ossuary in a niche in the wall in the back part of the tomb. And an, an ossuary, again, looks kind of like a casket. I've, I've seen some actually, but they're small. In fact, they're just a little bit longer than the human femur bone, because that's the longest bone in your body. And they would take the skeleton apart and arrange the bones in those to keep. And this was what, probably what Joseph. Nicodemus thought they were doing with the body of Jesus, laying it out to decay. Maybe their body's laid out on a little bench at the back or depression in the floor. And Joseph and Nicodemus leave the tomb and their final act is to close the tomb by rolling a large stone over the opening to prevent animals or grave robbers from getting in. And this, think about this, this took place quickly In a short period of time, Jesus died around 3 p.m., 3 in the afternoon. The Jewish Sabbath officially began, where you could not do work, around 6 p.m. So Joseph and Nicodemus had some pretty heavy lifting to do in only three hours. Matthew points out to us, by the way, that at least two of the women at the cross were there to see where Jesus was buried. Again, I think that maybe that indicates they helped. I don't know. But surely they followed Joseph and Nicodemus and they saw exactly where Jesus' body was laid. That's important as we talk about the truth of the resurrection. They knew where Jesus was buried. Nobody nobody went to the wrong tomb. Okay, they knew. Now one thing to notice, observation number five, this has been coming all sermon long, Christ's burial fulfills Scripture. Christ's burial fulfills scripture. Can I read you a weird Bible verse? Isaiah 53, verse 9. I know you might know it, but listen to how strange this sounds. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. How strange that verse must have seemed to the people of Isaiah's day several centuries before Jesus. How could the servant of God have his grave both with the wicked and with the rich? Now, you and I might see no problem seeing the wicked and the rich as one and the same. In the mind of the Old Testament Jew, this would have felt like a contradiction. That feels impossible that he could have his grave with the wicked and with the rich. But what happened is exactly perfect. Jesus died between thieves on a cross as a criminal with the wicked, counted with the wicked. Yet, when Jesus was buried, his tomb was the tomb of a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. Nobody would have seen that little detail enough to plan it ahead of time. We've been pointing out each of the past several weeks that this theme runs through the story, guys. What Jesus has been doing is a perfect fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And here, even in how he was buried, God saw to it that his word had already told us exactly what was going to take place. So guys, let this give you confidence in the trustworthy word of God. Make sense? With me still? Good, I'm so glad. One last scene. Verses uh, 62 to 66, securing the tomb. The next day, Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So it's Saturday. It's the Sabbath after the Passover. The Jewish religious leaders again approach the governor. And their request is that Pilate do something to make it impossible for the disciples of Jesus to come to the tomb and steal away the body. Now what's interesting to me here, this is funny, you've got to think, the disciples of Jesus constantly missed the meaning of Jesus when he talked about that he would rise from the grave after his resurrection but the religious leaders these enemies of Jesus understood they knew Jesus had claimed on more than one occasion that he would rise from the grave on the third day and the Jews want to do everything in their power to prevent anybody from claiming that that kind of thing would take place don't you think if you're Pontius Pilate, you are sick of these men by this point? But you know what? Pilate is probably also assuming all right, this problem is just about behind me. He was wrong about that, by the way. So Pilate authorizes the Jews to find, use some soldiers, use them as guards, secure the tomb. What do they do? They put an official seal on the tomb that's a marking in wax or clay on the stone and and that would have shown people who saw it that it's a crime against Rome to open that tomb that would have that would have dissuaded a lot of people from trying to break in And the soldiers were going to stand guard from Saturday through Sunday so that no no way, because is anybody going to get in there, no cowardly group of disciples who ran away from soldiers in the garden are going to go try to steal a dead body from a guarded tomb. So observation number six, last one for today. The measures taken to prevent a hoax point to the truth of the resurrection. The measures taken to prevent a hoax point to the truth of the resurrection. One thing is for sure. All the guarding of the tomb, that should have guaranteed that without question, no way could that tomb wind up empty. Right? Right? had the soldiers gone there on Saturday morning and found the tomb already open, they would have reported back immediately. And a major investigation would have taken place. So the very move that the Jewish leaders made to try to prevent the followers of Jesus from gaining fame, it helps you and me believe in the fact that Jesus really is alive out of the tomb, risen from the grave. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week, okay? But you know what I wonder about? Just me and my brain wondering. I wonder if the Jewish leaders, those scholars of Scripture, if they realized that not only Jesus, but also Old Testament prophecy predicted the resurrection of Jesus. Isaiah 53, you guys know that passage pretty well by now, right? It clearly predicts the death of God's servant. But it also speaks of the servant of God as after his death, seeing his descendants and being satisfied. And that only happens if the servant who was slain somehow lives again. Listen to Isaiah 53, 8 through 12. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? You know what that is? That's them prophesying that the servant of God, the one God has promised, will die because of the sins, for the sins of the people of God. Then the verse that comes next, verse 9 says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. There's the burial, counted as a criminal, buried in a rich man's tomb, just like Jesus did. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Just stop here for a second. God's will crush the servant, force, use the servant as a guilt offering, a sin offering. Isn't that what we just said Jesus has been doing? What happens next though? After he dies as a sacrifice, substituting himself for the guilt of others, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. How do you do that if you're dead? You don't. (coughs) You don't. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. How do you do that if you're dead? Because he poured out his soul to death. We know he died and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he he bore the sin of many. But look at this and makes intercession for the transgressors. Even after his death, he lives again to speak on behalf of those he died to save. God promised that the one who died for the sins of others would see life again. Jesus promised that he would rise from the grave on the third day. But here, as our scene fades before our eyes, we are left with the deep quiet of Saturday night. Jesus has died. His body is buried in a rich man's tomb. His disciples are full of sorrow. The religious people think they've won. Pilate thinks this is all going to go away. But what is really happening right now, friends, is this. The earth is holding its breath. Soon and very soon, the Son of God will defeat death, rise from the grave, and prove for all time that He is Everything he ever claimed to be. So I would urge you as we wrap up, believe in Jesus. Scripture told us exactly what he would do, even to his death, his burial, and his resurrection. God performed miracle after miracle after miracle to point us to the truth of Jesus' claims. Eyewitnesses saw what happened and they believed. Know this, Jesus died as a sacrifice for the sins of everyone God will ever forgive. There is no other sacrifice, there is no other offering, there is no other sacrificial system out there that can make you right with God. So turn away from your sins, trust in Jesus, and be saved, I urge you. And Christians, stand for Jesus. It will require boldness to live for Jesus in a world as hostile as this one that would kill the Son of God. That has never changed. I don't know that that's going to fully change until Jesus returns, but I'll tell you this in our culture, it's looking dark. But listen to me, Jesus is who he claimed to be. Jesus did what he said he would do. Jesus is worthy of your worship, and he's worthy of your life, and he's worthy of your all. So stand for Jesus and be ready this week to rejoice with me in the fact that no grave came close to keeping our Savior down. He conquered death because he is God in the flesh. Let's pray together. Lord God, here we are, hearing of the burial of the Son of God. Such a thing should have never been needed, but we are sinners. And even as we rejoice, we do sorrow over the fact that we have been a part of something so cruel. Help us, Lord, to even as we think of the sealed tomb that will soon be empty in the story, help us Lord, to remember that that is a sign of the depth and glory of the great love of the Lord Jesus. And even as it is somber, it is beautiful. Lord, we are sinners. We need grace. I pray that anybody here who has not yet believed in the Lord Jesus would come to him and be saved. I pray that those who have come to Jesus to be saved would submit to obey him in every single thing. Lord Jesus, be glorified in our church, in our lives. We ask it in your, in, in your holy precious name because of your gracious offering and your glorious resurrection. Amen. Let's stand together.